0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Ashley Ward, who is a professor at the Animal Behavior Lab at the University of Sydney, and he's also the author of a a couple of cool books. The most recent one
1: is called Where We Meet the World. I think it has a different name in the UK, right? That's right. Yeah. it's The vagaries of publishers means that they get to kind of pick, and in the UK and the rest of the world, it's called Sensational. Yeah, it's confusing because sometimes I wind up ordering like two copies of the
0: same book, and then I realize, (laughs) oh man, because Amazon doesn't tell you. And then also this one called The Social Lives of Animals. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here, Greg. Now, look, when I was reading these books, it made me think that you really have a kind of an interesting life, I got to say, because you're reporting from all these different, not only parts of the world, right, like different countries and so forth, but also like different environments. You spend a lot of time underwater, and then you spend a lot of time like out in fields. And what surprised me is that most people who are studying biology, right, or ethology or whatever, they have to be like, you know, you're like a slime mold guy, or you're a lion guy. And I guess technically, are you a krill guy? Is that your thing, right? Your specialty?
1: You're like a microscopic fish guy? <laughs> Not really, no. I mean, I try my absolute best to resist this thing. You're absolutely right. This kind of pigeonholing does go on, but I try to expand and, and to, to, to take into account everything. So for instance, at the moment, I'm working on some human stuff, but you're, you're absolutely right in saying in the, in the past, I have worked on krill. I've worked a lot on fish. But yeah, I'm reluctant to just narrow my horizons in that respect because really there are so many interesting things out there, so many different wonderful animals, so many amazing questions to address. So I, I'm keen not to limit myself. Well, I think the questions that you're addressing are ones that, you know, you shine the
0: mirror back on you and the human species continuously, right? You're looking at, the, at these krill. I had no idea that these little fish were so social, right? And that was one of the big takeaways from the book is the the profound similarities that we find, not only between humans and primates, but between humans and bees and humans and ants and termites. Do you run the risk of anthropomorphizing them if you spend too much time thinking
1: about the similarities? That is a danger. So you've got to look both ways through the lens if that's possible. So yeah, I'm not trying to constantly compare humans with the animals that I study. What I am interested in, however, is the similarities and the differences. So, you know, there are certain elements of sociality amongst many animals, which we can see ourselves very clearly And there are other elements which the comparison isn't nearly so close fitting. So, yeah, I mean, it's not a guiding principle of my research work to try and compare animals very closely to humans. But I think to involve people who aren't specialists in this area, it's a useful means by which I can draw people in, and I guess help them to see the well, the very reason I'm so fascinated with these animals, but also, you know, how particularly they might relate to these creatures, which otherwise they might seem very unusual, let's say, at the very least. Right. And the the latest book is all about the senses, and
0: you set it up with the basic five Aristotle's five senses, and then you know you sort of you know, wander into some maybe some other senses. And do you think that our subjective experience of the world is in some ways shaped by our cognitive view of what constitutes a sense experience? It seems like as you're walking through, there's so much in the book about how our vision of
1: what we're experiencing shapes how we experience the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you use the word vision, which we do in the English language, Uh, less so actually interested in in other languages. But that in itself... (laughs) gives away a, a kind of secret, I guess, to the way that we perceive the world. We are such visual creatures. And that tends to color our view. <laughs> Again, I'm doing it now. Here's another metaphor, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That tends to color our view of, of how not only other animals, how other animals experience the world, but how really how the world is. And one of the most fascinating things for me was the realization as I went through the research for this book that Realistically, given the number of incredible number of permutations and, and differences in each of our individual sensory experiences that realistically all of us experience the world slightly differently. So we all live to some extent in a unique sensory world. We can compare between people and the overlap between people is, of course, very large but there are certain things that that i would perceive in one way and you might perceive in another and and that leads then onto our experience of the world but also the way we think about it too it's it's a really it's just the the most fascinating subject i think well you talk about how some other cultures might
0: have a much richer vocabulary for things like taste or for smell right and now is that dictated by the environment do you think right in order to survive and Certain environments you need to have a richer understanding like the, you know with the Eskimos and the
1: snow. Yeah, well yeah, so I think it's primarily cultural. so in the West, or whatever term we're using to describe the part of the world that we're in, we have become more and more divorced from living in what we might loosely term the natural world. We coalesce in cities, we live more and more of our life indoors, spend less time in nature. And although that can lead to a very rich visual environment, which, of course, suits us, and we have hi-fis and, and all sorts of communications that sort of titillate our hearing, our other senses sometimes less well-regarded by ourselves. I mean, so, for instance, smell is one such. And we were encouraged by philosophers and scientists during the Enlightenment, and subsequently to really consider smell to be a a fairly primitive sense, one that wasn't that important, that one that didn't really contribute much to our lives and indeed actually really wasn't animalistic and and something we should be almost ashamed of yet in other cultures around the world this spans south america africa and to the indigenous people of australia among others smell is so much more important part of that is as i say cultural they are living in in a cultural environment which really values smell and part of it as you say is also to do with the environment they're living in a and arguably a much richer olfactory environment. It's an interesting thing that genetically we have almost no difference from some of these indigenous people. So the genetic architecture of our sense of smell is broadly the same, but simply through valuing this particular sense, their sensitivity to it is much, much greater. And all parts of our senses can be trained. Think about wine tasters for for one obvious example, violin players with their sense of touch and their hearing. Our senses, if we don't use them, if we don't fully exploit all the wonders that they offer, tend to, I, I guess, just sort of regress slightly. The potential remains though, you know, even at relatively advanced years, people can still hope to train their senses to such a degree that they become able to better experience the world in a more rounded way. Yeah, I mean,
0: I think, I know a lot of people have taken courses on like body language and you take courses in, in how to communicate with your body, but I've never seen, you know, an opportunity to take a course on like smell language, right? But, you know, you can smell people's fear, right? I mean, y- I, and you can train yourself to smell these different flavors and wine. I always wonder can you train yourself to smell things like excitement and, and fear and all of those things? You know, I always wondered when we transitioned from pit trading to electronic trading, whether that you know, somehow altered the ways in which this like emotional contagion takes place, right? So in the first book, in Social Lives of Animals, you talk a lot about emotional contagion and how you can have this crowd intelligence and how different pieces of information get disseminated. But some of the ways in which it gets disseminated is through these sense cues. And I'm guessing that
1: humans do a lot of this stuff, but we, we don't really realize it. Yeah, absolutely. So there's you know, a huge value to interacting directly with other people and an awful lot of cues that are provided that go beyond the visual and hearing when we communicate via language. As to whether we can smell fear and excitement, the evidence suggests that we do produce different chemicals when we are in an aroused emotional state, such as, you know, when we're terrified by something or when we're, conversely, when we're thrilled about something. And those kinds of subtle cues can be collected by other animals. Dogs are, is an, are an obvious example. And we might think that we're simply not capable of this. Our sense of smell, let's say, is not sophisticated enough to pick it up. But it does vary enormously from person to person. And there are people who have such an exquisite sense of smell that they can start to pick up these cues. I keep talking about smell, but I, because I think it's really one of our, our least regarded and, and most underused senses. But <laughs> there's a really cool technique which is often used in research of smells, which we can broadly call the t-shirt test. So you might have somebody who is terrified we- wearing a t-shirt. So an example I give in the book is um, people were asked to smell the t-shirts of people who'd been either to the gym and so it produced sweat or people who'd done a skydive and had sweated through fear and were asked to rate whether they could, you know, to, to, see if they could determine the, the which t-shirts were worn by gym goers and which were worn by the sort of amateur terrified skydivers and and by and large people can although it has to be said that women generally speaking tend to be better at this than men so for instance if you go watch a scary movie in a crowd right
0: you're probably going to become you know more scared or <laughs> experience something very different in part because of the sounds they're making, in parts because of, I don't know, you can see their body language,
1: but probably also because you can smell something coming from them, right? Absolutely, yeah. So I think that's one of the wonderful things about going to the cinema. I'm a big cinema fan myself, and and you do get something extra from watching things in a crowd, and and that can be through a whole host of different means. But yeah, I think the experience of mass terror in a cinema is one that is very different from watching the very same film at home. And you talk about how
0: animals can detect threats. And I was surprised to hear that plants can hear, right? They can hear water and they can hear the chewing of caterpillars,
1: right? So how exactly do they hear these things if they don't have any ears? That is the big question because they don't have the sensory apparatus as we understand it to do this, and yet they can respond to it. I'm cautious about calling it hearing because hearing is, you know, we, we mean something very specific by that, a, a communication of a sound wave via a, a, a dedicated pathway to the brain. That the, the plants lack this, and yet they can respond to to the, to the sound of, of water. So that was a really nice experiment that was done where plants were placed in like a, a an inverted Y. So they, they're planted in the stem of the Y and the roots can go either to the left or to the right. On the right-hand side is a pipe of water, running water, producing a sound but not contributing anything to the liquid in the soil or, or that kind of thing. So no direct cues other than the sound. And, and amazingly enough, the plants did grow towards that pipe. Now... How they do this is, well, I, I, we haven't satisfactorily answered it. Science has many questions to answer. This is something that before the book, I had very little appreciation of. And it's the wonderful thing for me about science, and it's the, the thing that keeps gets me up each morning, is there are so many fascinating questions to answer. And even though we sometimes feel like we know everything we need to know, something new like this comes out, and it just boggles my mind, and I remain so excited about the whole thing. Well, I mean,
0: how does a research question like that pop into somebody's head? (laughs) Because I think sometimes if you're aware of a mechanism, then you can try to figure out, like, hey, what the heck is this mechanism doing? But other times, you know, you observe a phenomenon and you try to figure out the mechanism. But this is probably a phenomenon that no one ever really observed. And yet somebody thought to run an experiment like this. Like, where do those kind of ideas come from?
1: Yeah. I mean, the the Popperian view of, uh, of science is to make an observation and then to construct some, some sort of model to explain it, and then to systematically test it. That approach, though, extremely useful for guiding the process of science, doesn't allow so well for the process of creativity. And sometimes in science, we view, or, or it is viewed, rather, by, by others, I would say, probably more than by scientists, as a, as, a, as a relatively dry, relatively emotionless, very computationally demanding, but not, I don't know, not not an emotional sort of, or creative process. But I think that negates the incredible creativity that's required to be successful in science. And I think the idea that somebody that popped into somebody's head, however that came about, just illustrates that. Because I I don't know how it is in in the US, but in in the UK where I grew up, and to an extent in Australia, we view the arts and the sciences as being really separate things somehow. But there is a huge amount of crossover, I think, and actually there should be more. Creativity is re- a really driving process for for my research, anyway, to really think deeply about the world and to and to consider what incredible experiments could be done to answer big questions. Thinking out of the box, I guess, is one way, and 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 that looks like that's exactly what happened with these researchers with the plants. Yeah, and, and not to
0: just stick to smell, but it seems like smell also plays a big role in kind of figuring out in group out group identity, right? Ants will tell who's of the tribe and who's not and then you can disguise yourself by adopting the scent of your enemy
1: and smuggling yourself in you have a lot of stuff on bees and how they do this yeah it's there there's some amazing examples from social insects they're such comparatively simple animals and yet they develop these extraordinary societies And as you say, a a lot of the recognition that goes on between ants and between bees is based on smell. Partly that's genetically determined, but it's also partly to do with cuticular hydrocarbons, in other words, smells that animals accumulate on their external surfaces, which is in part derived from the things they eat and a kind of colony smell. And so (laughs) I, I give a couple of examples of how other insects wishing to get into an ant's nest or a a beehive can kind of anoint themselves with with a colony smell and thereby get past the uh, the detection, get get past the detection of the guards at the door. And and, and once inside, of course, if they can remain undetected, they live a life of luxury. They're protected. There are food sources in there. They can even turn on their hosts and start eating them, which is uh, most unfortunate for the ants or the bees. So, so smell for them is, is a fundamentally important part of recognition, much less so in humans, of course. We, we don't typically smell each other. And yet there is this suggestion that, that kissing evolved to sort of taste one another, taste being sort of intimately linked with smell as a means to determine whether or not somebody would make a potentially a, a, a good partner in terms of their genetic makeup for having children. Now, there's no test that we can do to, to determine whether that's true or not, but it's an interesting idea. Perhaps we do sample one another rather more than we think. Another really cool example of that is some researchers who basically watched what people did shortly after they'd shaken hands. After I heard about that, I started paying attention to myself (laughs) and noticed myself doing this. Yeah, you start to overthink things. So people would shake hands and then surreptitiously, very shortly afterwards, an amazing proportion of people would then smell their own hands. What what is that for? Is that sort of sampling somebody by by the smell, potentially. Um, we're not even consciously aware of it. So as you say, you know, we read that and we go, oh my God, do I do that? <laughs> and the fact is that probably, yeah, most of us actually do. It's interesting. Yeah. And you talk about this guy, the scratch and sniff coach. <laughs> 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 yeah. The Germany coach at the football championships. Yeah. He was caught scratching his private parts and then very shortly afterwards, smelling himself, which was incredibly embarrassing for the poor guy. But the thing is, he did it in front of an audience of millions, which most of us are more secretive about it on TV. And we might chuckle at that and think, you know, I have a sense of sort of schadenfreude about that, since he is German. But realistically, we often do that. And one argument for why we might do that is to sort of ground ourselves in our own smell. It's suggested that's also the reason why we lift our hands to our faces when we're shocked or or, or scared or surprised or emotionally disturbed in some way. We kind of cover our faces. That, of course, masks our emotions to an extent, but it has been suggested that it performs also a a dual function whereby we smell ourselves and that sense of ourselves through the olfactory sampling of our hands somehow helps to calm and to ground us. Again, very difficult to test at this stage in our knowledge, but again an interesting idea I think
0: yeah and I think a big part of the social lives of animals book is really about this kind of swarm intelligence concept now of course this is something that's of interest to me because we think about group decision making and organizational decision making how markets work it's all about pulling in information from all these different places and figuring out a aggregation function but you know these social animals that they have very complex aggregation functions built on super simple rules right and sometimes the information is transmitted through, these chemical signals, right? So you you talk about how anxiety, right? Rats in particular. I had some rats in my house and, oh man, it was a war. These rats figured everything out. They were always like one step ahead of me. I do think they must have gone back to their little rat cave and said, you're not going to believe it, but this is the next trap. He thinks he can get us with this thing. No way. It's not going to work, whatever. I had a little rat cam in my kitchen And I would watch them come up and sniff the trap and be like, eh, I'm not going near that thing and then walk around it. And then the next one didn't even bother to look at it. It was, it's remarkable. So, I mean, is this all about how do we get the best kind of outcome by using the smallest amount of kind of cognitive
1: resources? Absolutely. Information is a vital currency for all animals. And by pooling that information in whichever way, they can develop much better strategies. That applies, of course, to humans, as you say. If we're trying to make excellent decisions, then the best way to do that is to take a broad view of the information that's out there. Now, there are two ways of getting that information. You can either go out there and collect it all yourself, which is incredibly time-consuming, often in, in many cases totally impossible, or you can use social information, which is readily available and relatively cheap, and so long as you get enough of it, very accurate. This is what the animals are doing. So and rats tend to forage... Individually, but tend to go back to a central place to sort of, you know, to breed, to sleep. To debrief, right? Well, I guess to debrief as well. Yeah. So they go back to this central place and download the information they've picked up to some extent. Now, this isn't necessarily done in any kind of formal sense. They're not gathering together a committee and and then discussing their next move, but the cues that are available to them, they're extremely sensitive to. So, you know, a rat's been to eat a new food source the others in back in the nest will be able to smell it. They'll smell the presence of this new rich food source and then they can, if they so desire, trace the path of that individual that just returned to the nest back to that food source because rats have this lovely tendency, which I'm sure you enjoyed in your kitchen, to sort of urinate as they go and to transmit that smell on their feet. So the original root of the foraging rat can be recapitulate. I washed all my fruit <laughs> after that. Now, we, we don't do anything quite like that, but it, as you say, these sometimes really sophisticated and comprehensive and accurate decisions can be made by animals on the basis of this social information by some beautifully simple mechanisms. I've studied fish in this context, for instance, and you wouldn't imagine that they would be able to make such sophisticated decisions, and yet they have a mechanism known as a, a quorum Kind of test whereby
0: and this is like quorum sensing with bacteria right so it's like you know when you've hit some critical mass
1: and then there's a switch that flips yeah so this quorum mechanism is all about basically making the right decision and avoiding costly wrong decisions and that works essentially in simple terms by not simply copying the the, the actions of the first individual that you that you see or that you experience doing a particular behavior but instead Wait until a critical mass develops, and then and only then does this decision tend to be enacted at the group level so it's a really good way of filtering out bad decisions while not encumbering an individual with really complex decisions it's an amazing process having seen it in, in, at work doesn
0: 't it work in neurons too right so you know you have like action potential right and you need a certain
1: critical mass of stimulus to. Say okay, yeah, that, that's what it is, right? Yeah, a very close analogy to that. It's not quite the same, of course, but it's it's a similar principle. It just a you've got to build up a certain amount of a, a critical mass, as we've said in in the, in the case of a neuron, a critical amount of charge before an action is taken. Yeah, it's a fabulous thing to see it in action. Now, I think some of the most
0: interesting stuff had to do with fish, of course, and the shoaling or schooling instinct that these fish have as a kind of I guess it's a predator, anti-predator mechanism, right? And I guess there's lessons to be learned here. I think it was, I remember studying back in school, like why we had the convoy system in World War II, right? You put all the ships together to sail across the Atlantic because there's just only so
1: many ships that the U-boats can shoot down at at one time, right? Yeah, there are a few different elements there. So we'd imagine, like in the sense of a North Atlantic convoy, that, a large group of ships, sorry, <laughs> a large group of ships would be easier to detect than several lone ships crossing separately. But actually, the uh, the the, the modelling we can do on this suggests that, that isn't the case at all. The concentration of ships into a squadron is uh, a more effective means of avoiding enemy attention than 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 being over dispersed and spread out through the ocean. So that's one thing. And then secondly, a squadron is better equipped to deal with enemy operators i suppose it's not quite the same in fish in that case it's more specifically about if you encounter a predator which can only eat one of you and there are a hundred of you in the group then you only have a one percent chance of being eaten but if you're on your own or it's like saying a group of two and it can only eat one and it can capture one then you've got a 50 50 shot of being the unlucky one but again information is a currency and this applies to the ship's analogy it applies to the fish Groups of animals tend to be better able to detect through some kind of sensory, some sort of sensory upgrade that that, that the group provides of detecting a predator at a greater range and therefore being able to take evasive action if required. So I was just lucky enough to be, for my next book actually, I traveled to the Galapagos and I was watching hammerhead sharks attacking groups of prey fish. And while these things are, are phenomenal predators, the... Evasive actions of this huge shoal of uh, food fish was extraordinary to see and incredibly effective. When we see nature documentaries, we often see a bait ball just being smashed by the predator. Well, it's,
0: it's like that sports highlight films. You know, if you just watch them, you think that everybody has like a hundred
1: percent field goal percentage, right? Yeah, you'd think in a game of American football there were, there was nothing but touchdowns. Exactly. But when, when you sit and watch this long term interaction between the, this big group of, of, of prey fish and and the uh, and the sharks. These things go on for hours and hours, and and the chances of any one individual fish losing its life on that particular day is really small, despite the attentions of what were often very large numbers of predators. So clearly, it's an effective strategy to form into these shoals, and moreover, animals generally don't perform behaviors which, on average, don't gain benefits for them. So it's a successful one as well. Well, maybe someone should hire you to be the next Mutual of
0: Omaha guy. So you can say, hey, you guys are missing out on a lot of interesting stuff. You talk about the hyenas. I love this story about how the prey animals, the predators will just kind of wander in among them and just hang out. And they kind of ignore them because they're like, yeah, they're just checking us out and they don't get too worried and they just keep eating. And it's only after they've checked everybody out and they've identified the weak link, that's when they go into action. I I never knew this. This is fascinating.
1: It's so interesting. And it also speaks to the things that, that we were discussing earlier, picking up subtle cues from other individuals in your environment, in this case, prey animals. So hyenas are extraordinarily intelligent animals, as indeed are many social animals, a point that I make in the book. But they saunter between these herds of wildebeest, very subtly but nevertheless carefully checking each one out they're looking for weakness for signs of condition an animal in good condition is obviously going to be harder to take down than an animal that is in some way weaker than it might be and they very very carefully select a victim and once that's happened then the hyenas go to work and they are extraordinarily effective predators much as indeed our wild dogs who do something very similar they pursue their predator's right to the end and we again tv documentaries have done a, a great disservice to hyenas because it's implied often that the hyenas are scavengers who take the prey of animals like lions the truth is if anything the other way around hyenas tend to catch more of their own prey than they scavenge and in certain parts of the world at least for lions it's the other way around they use their bulk to basically usurp a kill or usurp other predators from their kills and again from the nature documentary we, we get this idea that you know hyenas are or, or indeed even from the lion king that hyenas are, are, are untrustworthy ill-favored creatures and yet i'm reminded of a story from a great african naturalist who kept a hyena that he'd adopted as a cub and this hyena slept in his tent it was called solomon and followed him everywhere and it wasn't until actually he it became a bit of a problem because this naturalist would, of course, visit game camps in Africa, and the hyena, by dint of its bulk, would find no difficulty in making its way into the uh, restaurant rooms of these game camps, and it had a, an unquenchable desire for cheese. So it would turn up at the buffet, much to the horror of the other people who didn't know that it was a tame animal, and, and help itself to a little bit of cheddar or Swiss. <laughs>
0: well, you also mentioned that in Africa for a while, they would have domesticated baboons that would
1: operate trains and stuff? Is that real? Yeah, it's a well-documented case of a, a railway engineer and signalman who lost both of his legs in, a, in an accident. He was assisted for the remainder of his life, which was quite a long period of time, by a baboon which would change the signals for him and which worked very closely with him to such a point that, although at first the, the railway company, when they, when they learned of this, were extremely disconcerted to say the very least, came to accept that actually the baboon was doing a fantastic job and eventually uh, awarded it not only a uniform, but a a salary. (laughs) (laughs) Paid in bananas, probably, right? I think they paid him in beer, I'm afraid, but yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, the other thing is, I mean, look, when we domesticate animals, it seems like we never completely domesticate them, right? I mean, they always have within them at least the ingredients that would allow them to get rewilded if we wanted to. And I think you talked about some of these projects, but these animals are not really optimized for the conditions in which we put them. And and you had some examples of how these cattle and chickens, their hierarchies, we have to work
1: hard to keep these hierarchies from forming, right? Yeah. Well, it depends, actually. It depends what what the goal is. In terms of chickens would normally live as the jungle fowl that their, their ancestors would normally live in groups of around 30. Each individual in that group would know its position in the hierarchy. And although hierarchies are connoted in our own minds with certain undesirable characteristics in the animal kingdom, a hierarchy has a potential to to go bad. certainly for the ones further down the pecking order and an extent, for an sometimes for the ones at the top too, but it does tend to have the function that it keeps the peace. Each individual knows where it is in that hierarchy, and this avoids the need for unnecessarily squabbling and fighting. The problem with modern chicken rearing is that we tend to do it in huge groups. In that case, no hierarchy ever forms, and the result of that is that animals tend to fight more. So in a, in a stable, established hierarchy, animals don't tend to fight that much. When there is no hierarchy, the animals do tend to squabble a lot. In cattle, it's interesting because the hierarchy there is not immediately obvious to, to, an, to an outside observer, but there is a strong hierarchy there. And I did some research, actually, with some people here at the university. And you'd think when, when the animals are, are moving between different places, let's say between the milking and parlor and, and the field or what have you, that the, the dominant individuals would go first. But actually what happens in, in cattle is that the dominant individuals pop themselves right in the middle of the group, and they basically force the subordinate animals to go first, so that they encounter any sort of anything rather unfortunate that might surprise them in some way. They encounter it first, so the the dominant individuals tend to use the subordinate ones as, as a take like a minefield.
0: You want to go first. You let them go first in the minefield.
1: Exactly, but. I, I, one of the most amazing experiences I've seen of, of domestic animals gone wild was was actually over there in the US, at uh, uh, Assateague Island, the, the horses there. They came ashore from <laughs> Spanish ships, I, 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 I'm given to understand, um, centuries ago. And they've become fully feral, fully wild. And they were interacting socially in a, in a way which is recognizable to owners of domestic horses. But they interestingly went right back to the kind of social structure that they had before millennia before, probably before when when they were first domesticated. So as you say, that the seed of their social systems remains within them and can emerge after dozens of generations of it being in abeyance. Well, I mean, with horses, I spend time around horses. Their hierarchies are immediately
0: obvious in the pasture, right? When they're you know, hanging out you know, or in the back of a truck or whatever. I mean, they're pretty opinionated about their place in the pecking order. And they also want to know about you, right? So if you meet a horse, first thing they're trying to figure out is, hey, is this somebody I got to listen to or is, is somebody that I'm going to have to fend for myself with? And they can pick up on your mood. If you're anxious, they can tell. It's crazy because I'm imagining that the amount of hormones that you're emitting is a tiny fraction of what a horse would emit if
1: it was anxious, but they can still seem to pick up on it. They read us so well, don't they? I, I was once crossing a field with my dad years and years ago. I was an adult by then, a young adult, but in the field, I didn't realize it were, were three thoroughbreds, which as your listeners may realize, thoroughbreds are you know the most beautiful animals, but they're also a little bit crazy. And so when we appeared in the field, these horses started going a little bit mad and they're big animals, so they're charging about. I was getting more and more nervous, especially when one of them started rearing up and kicking its back legs out. It was clearly yeah. displeased to have us in there. But my dad is very experienced with horses. He was very calm. Com- you know, not as, as anxious as I was, he was calm. And, and actually, he simply walked up to this horse and, and sort of stroked its muzzle. And this wild bucking frenzied creature just became putty in his hands i thought i was going to die <laughs> but my, my dad would just walk up to it so i think perhaps the horse could read some aspect of his body language that he was calm and he was authoritative and, and he was willing to submit but if i'd have gone up to that horse i would have sh- I'm pretty sure i would have got at the very least a bite and at worst probably a, a hoof in the head So those horses were reading this perfectly, which speaks to your earlier point, yeah. Well, you know, we used to use animals a lot as partners for things like hunting,
0: and we don't really do that much anymore. I think probably the most well-known way in which we use animals now is with sniffer dogs at the airport. I got caught inadvertently bringing some apples back from Kazakhstan and got in big trouble with the folks at the airport. But it seems like there's more room for that. I think you talk a bit about how diseases, for instance, can be detected by smell. And presumably dogs would do a pretty good job of that. Should we be thinking about maybe, I mean, I guess the FDA might have a problem with this because there's presumably a lot of variation around the dogs and so forth. But should we be thinking more about how we can leverage the
1: superpowers of our animal friends? Yeah, medical diagnostics is is, is an incredibly sophisticated and, and does wonderful work in, in saving the lives of so many people. But At the very outset of a disease, you know, what happens is that metabolism changes in some subtle way, and that affects the chemicals that we give off. Now, these are often incredibly subtle, especially, like I say, at the outset of a disease, especially a a chronic long-term disease such as Alzheimer's or cancer. Nevertheless, the signs are there very early, and the first signs that emerge, probably long before we've realized, and long before actually the standard diagnostic tests can produce a result which would confirm the presence of such a disease and allow a treatment to start, the first signs come in changes in our our sort of chemical signature, our individual chemical makeup. And so that's where the potential lies for using animals with very complex senses of smell to perhaps recognize this, but also increasingly in the potential of what's become known as electronic noses to detect subtle changes in the smells we give off. People have described how somebody's personal, I wouldn't say odor, but that, that, that kind of implies that people smell bad. I suppose that's, that's part of our language problem with smell. But people's personal smell changes. It's been documented in, in Parkinson's, in cancer, in all sorts of terrible diseases. By the time we're able to recognize such a thing, the disease is often very well advanced. But the changes that can happen often far predate the ability of, of standard medical diagnostic tests to recognize them. So yeah, there's an awful lot of potential here, I think. Early diagnosis gives a much better prognosis. So yeah, I'm very hopeful on that, on that thing. That's one of the things in writing about the sciences that I think gave me the most optimism. If we can harness this aspect of our senses, whether we do it via artificial intelligence or via other animals. I think there's a lot of promise there. Well, I think also people can, when somebody is
0: sick, right, you can kind of tell and and presumably your immune system gets an early warning, right, and starts getting activated a little bit earlier because you can tell that someone else has already started getting some kind of infectious disease potentially.
1: Yeah, I I remember a, a story that was told to me as I was writing the book about a pair of sisters. They could each tell when the other was about to become ill with a cold a subtle change in smell is what they put it down to. Whether or not that sort of protected the other ag- against catching that cold in turn is, I'm, I'm not quite sure. But yeah, I think there's a long way to go. I don't think we've exploited the, the potential of our senses in this respect sufficiently. Well, I think technology is limitation, right?
0: So we can easily transmit visual images and sounds, but we don't have the smell vision yet. Do you think, I know this is probably outside of your area of expertise, but... What would it take to have something like smell vision? First of all, you have to detect which signals are involved in each smell, but then you'd have to have the ability
1: to kind of reproduce them, right? And there's just too wide of a palette, presumably. That's exactly right. Various film studios have experimented with the idea of smell vision in the past, but those means weren't necessarily subtle. It basically involved blasting particular smells out of blowers towards the audience at specific times in a given film. And that's fun, but the thing that you can't do with with smells is is to then clear it to make room for the next one in the way that a visual image can change and we can move the story along or or sounds can change. If your entire auditorium is full of smell, then uh, (laughs) then you've got to clear it before the next thing comes along. So the thing with smell, as you alluded to, is that it's our perception, our sensation of smell is produced by a mosaic of different activations um, in the receptors. We have Something like four hundred different smell receptors. And each smell is a composite of of different activation patterns. Receptor number one eight nine, number one one five seven and, and number fourteen might all be activated, and that gives you the smell of a tangerine. But if it's not fourteen but fifteen, then perhaps maybe that's a lemon or something. And that's the difficulty. There are so many different permutations of inputs that goes into each smell. There it's a very, very difficult matter to sort of untangle that and find the exact right receptor activation pattern which corresponds to each different smell i talk about coffee coffee is a smell that all of us recognize it seems singular it seems easily recognizable and yet it's a mix of hundreds of different chemicals something like four or six hundred different chemicals go into that smell we don't smell each of those different elements within coffee individually we just have the singular perception of coffee it's in that 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 makes it difficult to try and resolve smell to the degree that we've done with vision vision has basically two receptors one one of those receptors the cone has different sensitivities hearing has essentially one receptor which has different formats if you like but smell has 400 receptors it's by some margin the most complex of all our senses in that respect. And that's the barrier. But, you know, some dedicated people are working on this now. And I don't doubt that in a few years, this is a, a frontier that we will cross. Well, we didn't talk about taste, but I, I
0: learned that cows have, what, way more taste buds than we do. And you know, this is puzzling. And you said it's because of toxin avoidance. But how much, I mean, it seems like grass is. Grass, it seems like we're much more in danger as carnivores of getting all
1: sorts of toxins. What, what do the cows have to worry about? <laughs> You're absolutely right. So, you, you'd think, wouldn't you, that an animal eats the blandest imaginable diet, which modern cows do, with a mouthful after mouthful of grass, it can't be a particularly rewarding taste experience. And you would imagine that on the basis of that, There'd be no real need for them to have a, a complex sense of taste, and that an animal like a like us, an, an omnivore or, or a predator, would would have um, a finer appreciation of different tastes. But actually, that in some ways,
0: so as long as we avoid like dead animals. We just have, we have a simple thing like, okay, if, it's, if the fish is
1: alive in the tank before the chef throws it in the wok, we know it's good. It's partly that, yeah, because our, our, our sense of taste basically emerges as a gatekeeper. Some toxic thing that might get into our bodies and, and cause untold damage or from making us a tiny bit sick to actually shuffling us off this mortal mm-hmm. coil, that's likely to get in through the mouth. The sense of taste is therefore, it's, it's a, a doorkeeper. Right. And- really, although we think of our sense of taste as being a means by which we can derive pleasure from the world, its its primary function, the thing that it emerged for, is to stop toxins getting in. Now, toxins are many and various, but one of the biggest, well, the biggest category of toxins is from plants, plants that produce alkaloids, bitter-tasting compounds to protect themselves. And all sorts of poisons have been used throughout history to bump off significant individuals. And these are, I mean, for everything from nightshade to all kinds of terrible mushrooms. Hemlock. Yeah, hemlock, exactly. All of these things taste extraordinarily bitter, and our taste buds are set up to recognize these. Now, going back to the cows, they're eating plants all the time. Although a modern cow might be faced with what looks like an entire field of uniform grass, there may be poisonous Plants mixed in and amongst in some cases, particularly around the hedgerows and the, and the margins of the field. And so for an animal that eats a huge amount of plants, it needs to be able to detect these toxins and to, to detect them early. A carnivore, on the other hand, like a like a you know, one of the cats, for instance, or members of the dog family, they're eating meat, which the chances of that having toxic compounds in for most of their prey species is, is pretty close to zero. They don't need a sophisticated sense of taste because there's very little to gatekeep. Their nose will recognize if meat has gone off and allow them to avoid it. But in terms of taste, they're not going to be ingesting these toxic plants. So what we tend to find is the pattern is that the more carnivorous an animal is, the fewer the different kinds of taste, uh, the, 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 the less sensitive, I guess, its sense of taste is. And the more herbivorous an animal is, conversely, the more complex and sophisticated their sense of taste is. So Yeah, cows have a much better sense of taste than we do. We sit somewhere in the middle. We have approximately the same complexity to our sense of taste as a pig does. We're more complex than cats and dogs. We're less complex than rabbits and cows. Well, I'm not sure a pig or a cow would touch that Icelandic shark.
0: That That sounded pretty nasty, that stuff. But you said also that we have taste buds all the way through our digestive tract and that we can taste parasites. But
1: we don't know it. There's similar taste buds, but there's no subjective experience, right? That's right. The taste buds in our mouths give us the sensation of flavor. They're partly responsible for that. Obviously, smell is also responsible for that flavor. Which is why, well, when we get a cold, we don't taste things as much. But yeah, the taste buds are there. To, they're, they're, they're chemical detectors essentially, and they're wired directly to our brain to give us the perception of flavor. But those very same taste receptors are, as you say, sprinkled right through the body where they do a different job. They're not wired to the brain in the same way, so we don't get the experience of taste from them, the experience of flavor from them. But they are doing a similar job. They're detecting the presence of chemicals. They are all the way through our respiratory system. They are all the way through our gut performing vital roles that don't necessarily interface quite so directly with the brain, but nevertheless can trip and start certain uh, metabolic processes. They're even present in the gonads as well. And it was a finding from that, which uh, caused quite a stir a few years ago when some researchers published this finding that uh, men have lots of taste cells in their testicles. (laughs) That sparked this weird craze whereby People would get out bowls of soy sauce and dangle themselves into them, see if they could taste it. And some of them claimed they could. That's the incredible thing. They absolutely couldn't. They're not wired to the brain in the same way.
0: Well, you know, one time I I worked in a restaurant and I cut my finger and apparently the folk remedy in a restaurant so that, you know, they keep you working is to put ground pepper on your cut. And I remember as soon as I had the ground pepper put on the cut, I had this immediate sense of ground pepper. Right, I could taste it really and it was how interesting yeah it was really strange and I don't think that's a synesthetic experience and <laughs> you had some stuff in there on synesthesia this was actually you know I could taste the pepper and I, I'm not sure exactly how that worked
1: well yeah I I, I don't have a good answer for you I mean I, I, I kind of wonder whether the the grinding of the pepper released some chemicals that, that you smelled and then tasted by that means but yeah it's hard to know hard to know. I mean, your brain plays such a huge role. And I think a lot of
0: what you talk about in the Sense book is really about how your brain is filling in the gaps. And you talk a lot about Bayesian reasoning. And that book is really about cognition. I think the other book is also about cognition. It's more social cognition. And so there's so much in both these books. One of my favorite stories is how the fish will hang out around the shark (laughs) It's, a, it's, a, it's like, nobody's going to bother the shark, because so I'm going to hang out by the shark. I thought that
1: was remarkably clever. I, I would love to have seen it in person, but I've seen a video of a shark basically swimming along. And it looks like it's wearing a jacket made entirely of fish. The fish are so close to it that they're essentially stuck to it. Because the one place that shark can't eat you is when you're basically on its own body. It can't bite itself. So yeah, it's an amazing thing. It's very smart. Yeah. Well, Ashley, thanks so much for joining me. Both these books
0: are fascinating and particularly like hearing the stories of you swimming with whales and, and out there getting cold and getting hot and getting wet. And the life of a, an animal scientist does sound an awful lot like fun. And I think you said at one point when you're a kid, you're trying to figure out how can I get paid to hang out in nature? And it sounds like you've figured it out. You got the cheat code. I was incredibly lucky, incredibly fortunate. But yeah, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Well, thanks so much. The books are Social Lives of Animals and Where We Meet the World. Thanks again. We'll chat soon. Thanks, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.